1: Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 523 with Dr. Kyra Bobinette. If you've ever had a challenge between this intention, you've had to do something, and then your actual behavior in doing or not doing that something, Kyra can help. So you'll learn one, powerful behaviors that build life-changing habits, two, just how long it takes to form a habit, and three, quick ways to ease stress and anxiety at work. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F523. Now here's Kyra's story. When it comes to health engagement, Dr. Kyra Bobinett has five words of advice. Be caring, authentic, and useful. As a CEO and founder of Engaged In, Kyra devotes her life to helping people crack the code of how, what, and especially why we engage. Kyra has founded several healthcare startups spanning behavioral health, population health, and mobile health. She has designed behavior change programs, big data algorithms, billion-dollar products, mobile health apps, and evidence-based studies in mind, body, and metabolic medicine. All of her designs, whether for at-risk teens or seniors, are rooted in the belief that true caring is our greatest value. So thanks to Kyra for spending some time with us. And thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now here's Kyra. Kyra, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Absolutely. So much fun. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom because you've spent a lot of time studying something that I've wondered about for quite a while. And apparently it's called the brain behavior gap. Can you first tell us what is that?
2: Yes, sir. So everybody will recognize it as I know what I should do, but I don't always do it. And that's the difference between what you Know what you should do, your brain, and what you actually do, which is your behavior. And it's kind of this fun, humorous aspect of being a human that we all face this issue in trying to get ourselves to do things that we don't end up doing.
1: Yeah. So I have wrestled with this question ever since I remember in in high school, marching band, and toward the end of the summer, we had what we call band camp. Which the movie American Pie has ruined uh, the idea of fan <laughs> camp for people. But anyway, uh, we, we, we'd spend, you know, just about, you know, eight plus hours a day, Monday through Friday for you know, a couple of weeks, just work it on the marching and the playing. And I thought, man, you know, we are we make a huge amount of progress in terms of putting that show together. And I think, but what could I accomplish if I could just hunker down and work that much solo on something? And I, I still don't think I've cracked the code on how to actually do that.
2: Oh, dear. Yeah. It's it's such an interesting thing to listen to people's stories of trying to sequester themselves. They're almost like a runaway dog, you know, running away and you're, you're, half of you is like, come back, come back, you know, so it's really crazy.
1: Certainly. Well, so, so tell us, you know, what makes it difficult and and what should be done?
2: Yeah. So the reason why this happens is we have uh, basically two gears. uh, You can think of it in our brain. One is our fast brain. I like to call it. It's equates to uh, Daniel Kahneman's work on system one thinking all the autopilot, all of the mindlessness, all of the stuff that happens by habit and without thought, that's kind of fast brain, you think of tying your shoes, brushing your teeth, yada, yada. And then there's the slow brain, which is the sort of ideals, the problem solving, the the hard kind of mechanics and and decision-making and willpower and all that juicy stuff. But that's in short supply. So if you were to take a ratio, the fast brain like 95% of what we do and the slow brain's about 5% of what we do. And so oftentimes the slow brain gets its ass kicked by the fast brain and we're just doing the normal uh, distraction things or the, the things that feel good right now, the immediate gratification and the slow brain just doesn't have a chance. So everything that we deal with as behavior designers and that I've learned to do with, with behavior change is to work with those two gears and get
1: them to align. Intriguing. Well, and so I guess I'd love to hear maybe a story associated with someone who had something they w- knew they should do, but weren't doing it. And then they enacted some approaches to to see some cool results there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The general principle that people can t- take away is make the good stuff faster and make the bad stuff slower. So one of the amazing stories came out of Google, where they had an M M&M and M problem, and they, you know, they offer a lot of free food, and there's even jokes here in Silicon Valley about, you know, the the Facebook 15 or the Google 15, almost like in college when you gain 15 pounds because you have so much free food and and just endless trough of food. So they were having this problem with M and Ms, and they decided that they had to create some barriers, some friction, if you will. And so they took them from, you know, eye level bowls that were open with a big scooper and they put them in jars, closed them up and put them down by your kneecap. So you had to kind of squat down, which a lot of people weren't willing to do. And then kind of monkey open the the jar and, and get in there. And then they had like a little tiny scooper. And so that's one example of, you know, kind of putting friction in between you and the autopilot that will probably not serve you. So whether that is the snooze alarm, uh, you know, if some people have a real problem with hitting snooze. And so, you know, how do you create that friction for yourself to not hit snooze. Do you move the phone away, you know, your alarm with your phone on it away from you further, those kinds of things. And and people, once they understand how this works, they get really creative. It's just amazing to me.
1: Oh, I love that in so many levels. When you said M and M problem, I was thinking of the the rapper. Like, oh are they playing M M too loudly? Oh no no. The the chocolatey treats that are high calorie. I can see (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and so no, I, I think that's quite brilliant in terms of making them hard to access. And I've done that before in terms of if I, I've got a, a six pack of delicious beer and I want to drink it, you know, more slowly. Uh, just try to really put it deep in the back of the fridge so it's i have to be pretty motivated and committed to you know kneel down and reach reach through uh, and make it happen and sure enough you know it, it makes a six pack you know last long more days
2: exactly out of sight out of mind so
1: that's great and very well simply articulated and to make the good stuff faster and the bad stuff slower so that's reshaping the environment and and i'd love it if you could give us a few more examples of of some smart moves that have helped people out
2: yeah absolutely there's there's this con- Concept called the ulysses contract and this is from a colleague of mine uh, david eagleman who's a neuroscientist at stanford and he actually talks about this with respect to getting yourself to do the ulysses story is very famous in the odyssey where he basically is on a ship and he really wants to hear the siren sound so he has his his sailors lash him to the mast of the ship so that he doesn't jump overboard which is what the sirens make you do. And then he stuffs all of the men, the sailors with wax in their ears or cotton. I can't remember. And so they can't hear the siren sound. So they're, they're navigating the ship and he's able to enjoy the music without that. So, What Dr. Eagleman talks about is how can you put yourself in a situation where you absolutely have to do the thing, you know? So, you know, oftentimes when people purchase something, a cruise or a trip maybe that makes them take vacation because they're really bad at taking vacation or taking time off, daddy-daughter dates, you know, even, even date nights with your spouse, those kinds of things are kind of these Ulysses contracts. They're things that once you commit to them you've put so much into it that you have a disincentive to bail out and that way you kind of prevent your future self from making the wrong choice
1: i'm thinking if we zoom into uh, workplaces and professionals how have you seen some additional approaches play out in in that particular context. So, so we're at work, you want to do more of the good stuff, less of the bad stuff. What have you seen work out well for folks?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So all of us have had this, what we'll call phantom invites that we put on our calendar, right? I I call that behavior fantasy where you have a standing promise to yourself in the future and you just shoot right through it. It just, you know, so many times you break up with that promise with yourself so that it doesn't actually even get your attention anymore. You know, all of us have that, whether we put workouts there or go to sleep early or only work on the report until here, or even start like procrastinators like myself, starting something is the hardest thing to get yourself to do. So, you know, kind of wrangling yourself into that. There's a number of different strategies. So you can actually create social accountability which is kind of a consequence. If I tell somebody to hold me accountable, I set a deadline for that person, then there's a social element and our brains are extremely social. So we will most times than not get that done or get close to that deadline that we set for another person because we're we're obligating ourselves again in the future in that kind of Ulysses contract way. Another thing that people do is create a reward system for themselves. So that could be an emotional reward, that could be giving themselves a treat of some kind. Hopefully it's not going to uh, work against your health in any way. But if there's something you've been really wanting to do, a freedom, a delight, a, a just a little celebration that you want to send that signal of dopamine and even oxytocin, which is another reward chemical to your brain by really making it a point to celebrate and create a reward system at the end, much like you would train an animal.
1: Well, please share some examples of great rewards and celebrations. And we had BJ Fogg on the the show earlier who who had some great uh, perspectives on this. And and I think it it warrants some elaboration. So you want to be careful that it doesn't sort of work against other goals like, Oh, it's going to be a delicious Reese's peanut butter cup or something. I don't know with, with high calories, but uh, what are some, some great rewards or celebrations you've seen really work for some folks?
2: Yeah. The best ones are in context mean that, the, that they're related to the actual effort itself. So if you are trying to uh, get something out on a deadline than to basically build in a lazy day for yourself the next day. And in most cases, in most Workspaces, you can kind of take it back a notch for a little while, and and go for a long walk, or 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 take a little extra time, or even do something different on your break. If you have a very rigid break system, uh, you know, timing wise, so those kinds of things where you feel like you're free and, and you're in control, and and you're 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 the boss of yourself, and you're not really tying yourself to the dutifulness, which so much of us do at work, is being dutiful to others or to your team. Team and, and really just doing something nice for yourself. And it's the, I think it's the hardest thing in the world for people to do to really have a moment of selfishness that really helps to signal to themselves, hey, I'm here for you and, and I'm taking care of you. And that really, I find in all the people that I interview and research, they really stop rebelling. Against themselves when they when they have those little treats that they give themselves,
1: I like that well, so so we talked a bit about uh, behavior change and shaping the environment. L- let's talk about specifically uh, habit formation. We talked a bit about the the celebration rewards piece. Could you maybe orient us to to the overall science behind habit formation?
2: Yeah, so this is super fascinating. I started out in workplace stress reduction in one of the programs that I created. I created a mindfulness program that was kind of the first in class when I was at Aetna and has since kind of been taken up by Headspace and Calm and some of these apps. So those are all really great. And I am still a proponent of mindfulness, but I find that unless I can make something as mindless as tying your shoe, it's not going to survive your modern life. So we have a new model we need to really follow of behavior change, which is habit formation vis-a-vis unstoppability, you know, being unstoppable, being the ability to just keep going and going and going. And one of the things I found in my research on habit science is that there's a new area of our brain that's been characterized called the habenula. And that's a mouthful, but it's basically in charge of two things. One, it is a, it is a detector of you thinking you failed. So if you think you failed, I could throw you in an fMRI machine and it this part of your brain will light up. Right? So the second thing that it does, yeah. if it lights up, if it gets turned on like that, is it kills your motivation to try again. And this to me was shocking. And kind of the reason why you see people do really, really well in terms of changing their behaviors. They set goals, they track them, they do all these things. And then one day, including this happened to myself, including one day you just stopped doing it. And I had patients like this and I would say, so what happened? And they would literally blink and look at me blankly and say, I have no idea. They don't know how they got there because it happens subconsciously So the person doesn't even consciously know that they lost their motivation. They just don't do it, you know? And so one of the things with habit formation is that if you practice and if you practice and practice, you'll find something that you can get to go. You can close that brain behavior gap, get yourself to practice and practice and practice. And as the brain responds to that repetition, what it does is it creates like almost like a highway. It lays down the asphalt so that you can drive even faster. So that behavior goes faster and faster and faster and it becomes part of your fast brain, that autopilot mindlessness area that, that we talked about at the beginning. So that to me was just amazing and shocking. And so it completely changes the paradigm of how to change
1: behavior. Right, well, and I think you have all sorts of implications there. The habinula, you think that you failed, so it kills your motivation to, to try again. I guess I'm imagining then one implication may be that you want to maybe reduce the size of the thing you're trying to habituate so that you don't fail. You know, you, you keep on winning again and again and again and, and building that highway. Is, is that accurate? You know,
2: that's the safest thing. And I know BJ, who's one of my mentors, is really into making it small. I do think that you can really get a higher percentage of shots on goal if you start with small. But I've seen people start out with something big if it works for them. I, to me, my the thing I'm drawing from the science these days is what matters most is if you find the thing that turns you on and that works for you, that fits into your life, no matter how big or small it is, usually it is small, especially with somebody who's a little shaky in their confidence in that particular area, which is what BJ is really good at, is just like getting that wheel to turn, you know, in people and simplifying it and making it Tiny, you know, he calls his program Tiny Habits, even. So, I do believe that that's a really good, you know, kindergarten place for everybody to start safely. But I also noticed in my own research that the more important thing that we found is something called the iterative mindset, that we're calling the iterative mindset, because we found people who change their habits, big habits, big lifestyle habits against all odds. But they did it by finding their experiment, by looking at it as an experiment, and then iterating or tweaking and tinkering with it until it worked for them. So maybe you can kind of see that as a small change too.
1: Understood. And while we're talking about laying the highway, (laughs) roughly, I, I guess that maybe there's, I've seen all kinds of different ranges quoted in different places, but how long does it take to form a habit? Is it 28 days? Is it 66 days? Does it depend? And what does it depend on? can you lay it down for us?
2: Well, Pete, I just so happen to be nerdy enough to know the answer to
1: that. (laughs) Oh, please.
2: I actually, you know, about four years ago, I got, I had that, I asked myself that same question and I had my neuroscience team really, really scrub the scientific literature and put together a model based on the evidence that was there. So actually it takes one full year to fully what's called myelinate, which is that pavement in the brain that makes it super fast. The electrical signal can go way faster for a new habit to form. And that's with fairly you know, daily, if not multiple times a week repetition of that habit. And so what happens when you have a highway after about a year is that you've got now two copies of the same behavior. You have the old copy of in my case i used to go through the drive through all the time as a just a easy way to get a meal and as i broke that habit my competing habit my my adult one year old habit was to cook at home for my kids and once you have that cook at home thing, you can still go through the drive-through. You still have that old highway and most people don't understand it. It's, it's not that they're not patient about building the new highway. It's that they make the mistake thinking the old highway is in disrepair.
1: So a full year, interesting. And so then I imagine it's like the full-blown you know, highway and myelination. Is there a kind of intermediate step uh, before that or how do you think about that?
2: Right. There's hope, Pete. <laughs> there's hope. <laughs> yeah. So, so what we know from the science is that around eight to 10 weeks, there's this kind of automation that starts to kick in. So it starts to feel easier and easier and more automatic. And then over the time that you do it, you're basically sending so many signals to your brain of, Hey, this is my new normal, that your brain makes it feel more comfortable. So over the course of that year, you're going to get more and more comfortable. It's going to become more and more you, you know, as opposed to not you. And it's going to get more and more automated. You can use less and less brain energy to make it happen. So that's where the mindlessness really kicks in. To me, we should all be looking at mindlessness as the goal.
1: Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun way to think about that mindlessness, uh, which almost sounds like a bad, (laughs) you know, thing to be avoided. (laughs) Today, mindfulness is everything. Uh, But you say mindlessness is the thing to pursue, and but it makes sense in this context, and and I appreciate that. So very cool. Well, so then, I mean, I guess there's uh, many many habits one might choose to build. I've heard some cool research or thoughts on on keystone habits, you know, habits that can sort of unlock a, a whole lot of. Of great results. Uh, Tell us when it comes to a well-designed life, uh, what are some of the habits that that tend to really do have some powerful ripple effects?
2: You know, the more I do this, and, and we've been building a software around this, and what we're finding is that it is literally a matchmaking exercise between that person at that time in their life based on everything they've tried before and they're burnt out on and what they're open to, and what can kind of re-engage them, uh, and then what excites them, what fits their life, what fits their schedule. It is, it's is almost like that old adage where you've got a, you know, floating circle in the ocean and it and an ocean turtle, sea turtle just happens to pop up their head right in the middle of that circle. You know, that's kind of how bullseye it has to be. And so I think that right now what we're what we're facing is how do we sift through all of the millions of options, you know, in any particular topic area and really find the thing that works for us, that works for me right now, that's going to again turn me on and really, uh, I, that, that I, it makes sense to me and it, it really is interesting to me. And just having that. I'll call it seeking behavior is the most important thing, it seems. And there's a, another neuroscientist that I really admired. He um, passed away a couple of years ago named Jack Pinksep. And his conclusion was that there were seven emotional channels in the mammal mammalian brain. We are mammals. And he noticed that the number one most dominant emotion was seeking, seeking behavior. So think Google, think online shopping, think You know, looking for a mate, looking for a job, that power of that looking is itself very therapeutic and positive for us.
1: Boy, uh, that feels like another hour conversation (laughs) right there. Wow.
2: We can have a part two.
1: (laughs) So the seeking is the strongest of the seven. And it seems like there's a lot of implications to that. What, what do you think is, are among some of the, the biggest when it comes to folks who are trying to become awesome at their jobs? If the seeking behavior is uh, among the strongest of those seven emotional channels, how do we make that work for us?
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously the the tribe that follows you is of that ilk. They've already won that particular contest because they're seeking, you know, they're, they're taking in new information. They're leaning into more and more answers for them. And they are perusing all the wisdom that you're sharing on this show and the people that you bring on this show. So, so basically they're locked in there. I think, I think just hearing it might just be uh, another validation of that, keep doing that. You're on the right track. That's exactly what we all need to do. And in fact, it should be probably a red flag in that case for this audience that if you stop seeking, uh, maybe look at that. You know, if, if you get stuck in your career or in uh, your progress at work, then look at seeking first. Did you lose seeking? Did you lose curiosity? Did you lose spending time wondering about things and opening yourself up because that's where that next round of growth would lead
1: you to. That's powerful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, so I also love to get your your take when it comes to automating building good habits and breaking bad habits, are there any particular behaviors? You mentioned there's a a matchmaking situation, but any sort of small behaviors you recommend we might start doing right away to make it easier to develop these highways?
2: In the habit science, there's two variables that stand out as the most important. Number one is time, the time of day or the time after or before. Your, Your brain understands time as sequences like I do this before I do that. You know, I shower before I get dressed. And it also understands things in terms of time of, I do this on Sundays, time of week, time of day. And so if you're trying to do a habit, you haven't anchored it in time or how your brain understands time, it's likely going to get lost in the wash of your life and your distractions. So that's one thing I would say. Uh, The other thing that the science is saying is that location is huge. We also understand. I do this in my car. I do this, you know, in uh, at my desk. I do this when I go to the the cafeteria. You know, those kinds of triggers, contextual—they're called context cues—are the thing that really helps to anchor the habit in space, if you will. So you've got time and space, and then there's the social element too, which is. I do this with these people. So one of the reasons why it's so hard not to, you know, be good, some people call it, I don't call it that, but you know, at a birthday party to not eat cake when everybody else is eating cake is that your brain is saying, "Oh, I eat birthday cake with other people." I don't just go to the grocery store and throw it in my you know, grocery cart usually, you know, by myself at home with happy birthday to me, you know, it's very social. So that those are some three ways that I think, you know, somebody who's thinking about a habit could strengthen it and could really help them to select the right one for them.
1: And so with all this talk about in environment and habits, you know, I'm curious in terms of what have you seen in workplaces are some of the, and I know it's going to be a special fit and matchmaking person to person, but boy, what are some of the most uh, prevalent uh, bad things in, in <laughs> habits and environments and, and good things in habits and environments that you're seeing in workplaces today?
2: Yeah, I would say the most, the most troublesome one is, the stress habit that gets turned into gossip and toxicity. So most cultures don't have a, I'll call it an anus of, for the stress that gets built up there. But <laughs> I'm a doctor, so we you know that kind of yeah. word is available to me. Uh, it might be the first time the word <laughs>
1: anus has been uttered on the show. Thank yeah, you, Kyle. Yeah.
2: The (laughs) listeners are like, what did she say? So, yes, I said anus. You mean
1: we're screening it out, I think, is where you're going with this. I said
2: anus. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to say it a couple of times. So, yeah, we we need some outlet for all the stress and friction. And, you know, people are moving a million miles a minute. They're going from meeting to meeting to meeting or they've got production schedules or they're, they're stocking shelves like crazy, whatever your job is. And you are going back to back to back to back most people can't even find time to go to the restroom at their modern work, right? So all of that creates all this friction and all of this like angst and rumination that the brain's going through. And then there's not a real good mechanism that needs to be designed for really, you know, the exhale, the anus, you know, pooping, getting it all out, you know? And so that then turns into backbiting, gossiping, cannibalizing each other, that sort of thing. And so I would say that what works for everybody is to engineer some downtime in the middle of the day to find ways to give yourself a mental break to, you know, this is where mindfulness comes in really good, you know, three deep breaths and you literally reset your brain and you just have to remind yourself how to do that or get your attention to remember to do the good thing you know that you know to do so those kinds of mechanisms i think are universal and then there's sort of little productivity things that people Are like, I would say there's different segments of productivity tricks and hacks that people have. You know, there's the procrastinators like myself who need to have external deadlines to bump our noses up against. There's people who are super diligent who need really, you know, who are maybe introverts who need that quiet time away. There's people who are extroverts who need to go and, you know, pull together a bunch of people and talk everything out, you know. And so those are some ways that I see are mushy, but could be more clarified if somebody were to take the time and kind of almost journal or or, or articulate it for themselves. What kind of person are you? What kind of worker are you? When do you see yourself really shine and and really turn on? And I think that'll help people understand, you know, some of the habits that are maybe positive and maybe toxic for them.
1: Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. And, And what is some of the most encouraging, great stuff that you're seeing there?
2: My heroes these days is a company called Workday and they do HR technologies, kind of SaaS platforms. But the thing I like about it is that their people who are in charge of their employee well-being are focusing on rumination because that one of the good things that's come out of the mindfulness research of late in the, in the neuroscience side is that we know now that if your brain is on loop in an area called, no, forgive me, dorsolateral PFC, which is prefrontal cortex. It's basically kind of, if you look at your forehead and you kind of go an inch to the right or left, there's two little areas there that are Basically, causing you to focus on yourself and rumination is: Oh, did I do that right? Oh, what does she think of me? Oh, am I going to get fired? Oh, you know, when's my performance review? Uh, am I ever going to get up? You know, rise up in this company? Do I need to uh, look for another job? You know, does so and so like me? All that rumination and what they know work workday is dealing with is training programs and discussions and well-being initiatives to help people deal with that rumination because. That has been tied to, again, going back to MRI studies, to feelings of depression, feelings of anxiety. We have an epidemic of anxiety these days because of the number of triggers our brain sustains that throws us into rumination on a daily basis. So I think the modern workplace is really how do we design for freeing ourselves from this brain's kind of loop tendency to get into rumination? sequences, you know?
1: Oh, and, and Kyra, I'm fascinated by, boy, I, I've encountered some research associated with how our current levels of anxiety are just like wildly uh, higher than they were a generation or two ago. And so uh, that's a whole other conversation. But well,
2: what are you seeing in that? Because you, you live this every single day, you live and breathe in this industry and in this you know, area.
1: Well, but I I think I I heard a talk in which someone said that in particular, I think they were talking about teenagers had levels of anxiety just sort of like normally, like in terms of like their day-to-day experience that were comparable to, I think, sort of veterans suffering from PTSD. And I said, what? Uh, and so that was eye opening and and so I've got two I've got two precious kiddos under two right now and I'm thinking about you know their future. And I was like, whoa, what is going on there? That's intriguing. And and I have yet to do my my seeking of, of many answers there. But you brought up something intriguing there with regard to well, hey, we have so many more triggers now for rumination that lead to anxiety. So uh, could you unpack what are some of those big triggers we've got now that we didn't have before?
2: Yeah. So, you know, we have so much exposure, right? So, let's say, take a typical Western person in the US, for example, and even before they start their first meeting or activity at work, they have listened to or watched a million things that could have triggered an emotion in them. So, all that residue is kind of spinning around in their subconscious. And that's going to lead to rumination if they do not. Do something consciously and mindfully about it. So if they don't ground out and say, I send compassion to that war torn area I just heard about, or I just heard about the fires in my area, or uh, a tornado that happened in the Midwest, or any of those things, like it does land in the brain. And even if you think you're tough and you move on, it moles around inside. And so that's the kind of fodder or tinder by which this rumination fire just starts to to burn and starts to go and go and go and you know it's subconscious so what happens is that you don't even notice it until maybe i've i've talked to executives who suddenly have panic attacks on a on a work trip you know and they're the most solid person in the, in the world and they're you know, super extroverted and things like that, but that's how it's affecting us. It's just that constant, you know, touch on things you can do nothing about, but you have an emotional response to.
1: Oh, thank you. So part of the mystery uh, is, is in place there. And I appreciate that. Kyra, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: Pete, what I stand for at this point is just making people unstoppable for me, I'm, the most significant thing in my career so far has been really understanding how iteration and iterators never fail. And they're in all kinds of industries and they are all kinds. So the one thing I really care about is just really helping people to wake up to that fact. It's a fact about your brain and how it works. And it helps you get around the habenula and all the little, you know, things that'll blow up in your face and that to me is revolutionary in terms of people's success at work and in life. And, and I'm just super stoked about that conversation and that, that concept and people making that their own as well.
1: Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: Yeah, so kind of along those lines, I had, a, I had a mentor named David Lewis, and he used to have this really interesting voicemail because I would call him sometimes for some moral support or, you know, how do I do this? And, and his voicemail said, hi, this is David. You didn't catch me right now. I'll catch you later. He said, don't ever give up no matter what you do. And then he hangs up.
1: <laughs> that's,
2: <laughs> and that's my favorite quote of all time.
1: Oh, it's lovely. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: So for me, it is the iterative mindset study that we did. You know, again, we've been building up this research for a couple of years now on the Walmart project. And we found that this iterative mindset existed in people who succeeded, but then we did, we took a huge chance in broad daylight in front of our biggest customer is the biggest, you know, professional risk I've ever taken And we did this study uh, to see if we could get people to adopt this mindset and if it would change their outcomes. And we actually found that, you know, we could get them to lose weight at the regular one pound a week, you know, healthy, healthy pace, and that they had habit formation that was statistically significant and they had mindset formation that was statistically significant. So to me, that was just delightful and, and really following the science and reading all the homework before that really helped us set us up for something that was going to work out.
1: Oh boy, that's powerful. And, and and maybe if we could hear one sentence on how would you articulate, characterize the iterative mindset as opposed to its alternative?
2: Yeah. And, and the credit goes to the MacGyvers of the world. You know, this is something that even though I'm putting language to it, this is found in nature. So people just are so clever and it's so amazing. So these are people that worked for Walmart, lower socioeconomic status. They had every stressor, every time and money constraint in the world, family not being supportive of them. And they changed their health. They changed their lifestyle to be healthy against all these odds. And what they all had in common was this iterative mindset, which is two parts that we can tell. Number one is they see what they're trying next as an experiment. It's not this like do or die. It's not a goal. It's just, hmm, maybe I'll play with this a little bit. Maybe I'll practice this a little bit. So they see it as a practice. They see it as a non-consequential experiment. That's part number one. Part number two is when they need to change something, either because a life disruptor came in. You know, they they had to move away from their favorite gym, or um, their shift changed, and they can no longer do what they were doing before—cooking for their kids, whatever. They would iterate, and much like tech here in Silicon Valley, that iteration, that that sort of relentless iteration of "I'm just going to iterate and tweak and tinker until I find the next thing that works for me"—made them different from everybody else because everybody else goes, "Oh, I failed." boom, they hit their habanula, boom, they stop trying without even knowing it. And boom, they quit. They quit trying. And that is the biggest problem. So, and every time I talk to clinicians or people who have changed their lives, they recognize this pattern. They're like, that's how I do it. You know? So I know that it's real. I know that it's natural. I know that it's not like high academia, but it's something that everybody can do to make their life better. And in fact, I haven't met a single person who has made their life better who didn't do it in this way.
1: Powerful. Thank you. Yeah. Now, could you share with us a favorite book?
2: Yeah. So my favorite book that I read every night with my husband, just one little passage, because it's teeny tiny. It's called the Tao Te Ching with Stephen Mitchell as the interpreter. And I just love it because it kind of messes with my sense of reality. It it says, you know, um, you know, do without doing. And that just is one of those koans that's just like, what? <laughs> I don't understand. So I, I I like making myself feel like I'm confused and I don't really understand this deep, profound philosophy stuff, but I still like to take it in and try to uh, chew on it a little bit.
1: <laughs> and how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job?
2: So for me, I use a couple things, you know, for my to-do list, I like the clear app and I only look at the top three things every day because your brain only understands sets of three. I also have been using otter lately to write my new book and that just transcribes all my words because I'm better at talking than sitting down and making myself write. And that's one of those, you know, Ulysses contract things. And then I also every year it's coming up now, I'm gonna do another vision board for 2020. So I actually do a vision board. I do it with just a big Sharpie and a big nice piece of poster board and I put it up for the year and pretty much everything that happens in the year follows that vision
1: board. Thank you. And how about uh, a favorite nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you frequently.
2: Yeah. I think that the, the one that's been really resonating with people lately is mindlessness is the new mindfulness because we know we're busy. We know we're distracted and we know we have to if we're going to change our lives and change our behavior, we have to get it to a mindless state.
1: And if folks want to learn more or get in touch with you, where would you point them?
2: Yeah. Well, we have our company website, engagedin.com. Uh, our product website is freshtrytri.com, And then my namesake website, you can always say hi to me, uh, drkairabobinet.com. I would love to hear from people.
1: And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to stop trying. That's my message is just be unstoppable and get around your habenula. And if what I said about the iterative mindset works for you or you need to even tinker or tweak that to fit your the way you think, do it because, you know, there's no reason to stop these days. And, and if you find yourself getting stuck, just, you know, shake it off and realize that you can iterate your way out of it.
1: Well, Kyra, this has been so much fun. Thank you and and good luck in all of your adventures.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I really liked Kyra's take on making something mindless and in that way you can make progress because then it is sort of bulletproof. It is unable to be co-opted by all of the stuff and the distractions and the maybe tough truth associated with to really build that super highway in the brain for a habit, it can take a a full year to get there. So good stuff from Kyra. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F523. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest, John DeJulius. He's talking about ways to build rapport quickly with folks. And if you're looking for another podcast to tickle your brain right away, you might check out the Explain It Like I'm Five show, which is a lot of fun. This is hosted by my buddy Tim, whom I met at Podcast Movement. Super cool guy, super curious, thoughtful guy, and he brings that into the podcast. And basically, it's just about uh, learning stuff and having it explained to you like you're five. So, I was just listening to the episodes associated with "Hey, what's up with noise canceling headphones? How does that work?" and how does that unfold? And what's the difference between noise isolating, et cetera, and dopamine? What are some misconceptions? It's just kind of a fun brain teaser. It's called Explain It Like I'm Five or E-L-I and then the number five. Hope you dig it. Until next time. Peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com